0: Love Talk Radio.
1: Good morning, good morning, good morning. Thank you all for joining us today on Patricia Adams Live this morning, August 8th. At 8 a.m., we have Dr. John A. King. He is the founder of Give Them a Voice Foundation, and he is also addressing human trafficking and PTSD recovery. He's written several books, but the one book in particular that we are going to be going over today in addition to his story is #Hashtag. Deal with it. Living well with PTSD. There is a comment on the front by Jenny Mao of The Real, TV host and personality of The Real, Jenny Mao, and she says, I was transported into feeling the torture, innocent souls suffer from sexual exploitation. One can never fully understand the individual's permanent damage, but Dr. King." Guides us to be educated and united to become the change we need to see. And I want to emphasize to become educated and united to become the change we need to see. This is not about gender. This is not about race. This is not about class. This is a human condition. It's a human condition that has existed for centuries. Before Dr. King was born, before I was born, before you were born, this existed. The only way that we can truly, truly, truly make the change that we need to see is that this can no longer become just a gender issue. This is not about gender. This is about a human being being mistreated by another human being or a group of human beings. And any time you find inhumanity to humanity, that is the crime. We cannot legalize some crimes and punish other crimes. This is a crime. This is a crime against humanity. This is a crime against everything that the universe itself stands for. You have seed time. You have harvest. You have hot and cold, you have winter and summer and fall and spring. The seasons of of life of the universe are being violated in the lives of the individuals who are being trafficked and sexually exploited and abused. And when you have to resynchronize your life after you have been bruised and taken out of sync, literally it it destroys the rhythm of your life. I I can only say that is that for that period, for that season that a human being is being exploited, it totally upsets the equilibrium of your life on every level. Spiritually, mentally, emotionally, financially, socially, on every level because that is the intent to create chaos in you and around you to keep you from being able to exist in this universe as you were purposed to do. That is the crime. That is the crime when another human being or a group of human beings choose to do that to other humans, but especially when you do it to your own. And this is the story of Dr. John A. King. This was not a stranger. This was not a group of strangers. These were people who were supposed to be trusted, supposed to be looked up to, supposed to be honored. And and people always say, you know, honor your mother and your father. Honor, 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 honor. But it also says give honor to whom honor is due. And if they have not been honorable, then there is no honor (laughs) in that. So, I don't want to belabor this point, but Dr. King, I really appreciate you so very much for well, waking thank up you this very morning.
2: Much.
1: Yes, and and Melissa, thank you so much for helping to coordinate. Melissa is his wife, so for those of you who are looking, he is married. <laughs> very much so, and so. I I want to stress that, you know, is that uh, you see the posts that have been made about him. He is married. He has a very dedicated wife, and they work very, very well together. I've met them both in person as well, and they definitely are a complement to each other. So without that, there is a foreword in your book, Dr. King, and you talk about a lot of different quotes, things that matter to you, quotes that in particular stand out to you. But in your dedication, I'm going to talk about the dedication. You says, to the men and women who stood and walked with me. To the voice on the other end of the phone, the light that guided me home, thank you. I really want to ask you about the dedication because it is, it is literally two sentences, basically. Most people have a huge dedication, but in the words that you've said in those two sentences, it's actually one sentence. I mean, a you know, because there's a semicolon and the reality of it is, is that it took men and women to stand with you. But what is standing with somebody look like? And what was it like um, for you to have somebody stand?
0: Oh, wow. Um, I think, uh, yeah
3: i had recall of of the events at forty five i'd i'd suppressed it till then though little they are like little frames of um they like little frames of um they like little frames of of film and, and like eight millimeter film and when and when when they all came together and i had recall this thing played and i realized what happened to me as a child um, so so when it came back I realised what had happened and I started to talk to people about that trying to seek solace and talk to some folks and I was surprised at how many people that I thought were very good and close friends just cut off communication because somehow they felt that they were going to get dirty by talking to me that somehow they could catch this whatever this was Um, that a child who was used for pornography Um, was now a pornographer, Uh, it was was the strangest thing. And so out of these, you know, masses of friends or acquaintances that we all have, there was probably only two or three, maybe four or five, that stood with me and, and were prepared to walk with me and talk with me about it. Because as you start to process, you know, child sexual abuse or being trafficked, there's a lot of talking that has to take place. You, you, you're trying to constantly process the emotions and the images and the recall and the memories. And I know it can get very um, laborsome. Um, and I, I imagined it would, was horrendously laborsome for some because you're, you're, you're going over the nuances of this thing and trying to ra- rationalize it. And there are very few people who are walk, prepared to walk through that with you. Uh, so... They played a very a huge part in recovery for me.
1: And when I envision somebody standing, it's kind of like putting a scaffolding, if you would, around somebody who can't stand on their own and they need that support. I, I you know, people to me, if if you say using a walker because you can't stand. A walker doesn't really do that justice. For me, it's having a scaffolding around you. uh, And a scaffolding is made out of very strong material. It's very sturdy if it's put up correctly. i put it like that. I mean, some scaffoldings have collapsed. But if if a properly installed scaffolding around an object that needs support on every side, I I mean...
3: Yeah, I think that's that's a great image. And I think there are definitely times when people need that. Uh, for me, I, I think it was really the pace of the walk. Um, mm-hmm. Some some days it would be, you know, uh, two steps forward and then, you know, three steps. Put, put it like this. I, I, I realized that if, if all I could do was stand, then I could stand. So if I could stand and not move backwards, then I was making progress, if, if that makes sense. And sometimes if I was to fail, then I would fail forward, which, you know, I'm six foot tall. That would put me six foot further along than where I was the day before. And so some days for me, success was measured um, simply by being able to stay in the same spot. And and the people who were prepared to walk with me, some days understood that it might be a week before I can take a forward step and they were prepared to measure the tempo of their life and our relationship according to my ability to be able to process things and move forward and I think that's very important. I I wanted to stand on my own two feet and I needed people there to catch me like you said, the scaffold but I just needed people who would understand that this time next week I may be in the same spot but I'm doing my best to get ahead and To have people like that, I found, was a rarity. Uh, Most people would leave you in the dust, as it were, because, you know, the the nature of the thing is you sometimes have to talk circular. You have to go over things again and again to try and make sense until you come to the place of realizing it's never going to make sense. Um, And then you just move on.
1: And that is a, a very, very important point. For anybody who's listening in who will be listening in later is that you you want to find out why. You want You want the answer to the who, what, why, when, where, how. You want that because the human mind needs to be able to comprehend what has happened and why it happened and why I me. Mean. But there does come a time when You won't find those answers. Nobody will give you those answers. You can't give yourself those answers, and that's when you stand. And you stand, but at the same time, you have to decide, okay, you know, I have 50% of the truth of what happened to me, and I have to improvise the other 50% so that I can get to 100% so that I can move on, so that I can say, okay, you know, this is what I know. This is all that I'm going to know at this moment. And I I can only tell you is that I understand and I empathize with what you're saying because I've had to make decisions where, okay, today I have 50% of the truth of the who, what, why, Mm -hmm. when, where, how. And that's going to have to be enough for now, and I have to keep pressing forward. And then you have those days where that 50% is unacceptable. (laughs) It's unacceptable, and you find yourself turning around, doing an about-face, and going in pursuit of the other 50%. And then you begin to question the 50% that you did have. Yep. And then yeah, you turn back around. <laughs> yeah, and then you turn back around and you say, okay, now I have 55%. I, I can hold on to that and I can move forward. And you tell yourself, you know, I can I can do my life now. Um, and, and that's what you do. You keep repeating that cycle. And that's what people who can't stand and walk with you aren't equipped to do. There are some people who I yeah. call them voyeurs. Um you know, they want to yep. keep and look into your life, and they Very want to good. be a part of your life as long as it fits their, their definition of who you are. But when that definition yep. no longer fits, then they still want to be warriors. This this is this is the the deadly thing that you have to realize is that there are some people who are not equipped to stand and walk with you but they still want to be warriors into your life. They want to stand yeah. on the outside and look through your window and see how you fare. That's when you need yeah, to close the blinds. Yeah, that's, <laughs> to those that's
3: people. very good. Very very good. I think yeah. those people too um they they get some sort of perverted enjoyment um, mm-hmm. from reliving our story on their behalf. I know there was one person in particular who would greatly relish in telling people all the intimate details of my abuse to his friends and then would introduce me like a trophy. Oh, here is my friend. He was wildly sexually abused by her mother his mother and his friends you know, he would tell them all it's like a bar story to them and as you said they'll boy is looking in on it and then introduce you like the broken trophy you know and it got to a point where it's like i you know i had a very firm conversation about don't you ever talk to anybody about anything about me again because it's not it wasn't helpful to me you know i felt i felt naked and exposed because I don't run around talking about my story unless it's in it going to be in a meaningful, impactful way. And, uh, you know, those voyeurs are vampires too because they, they suck, they, they, they can suck recovery out of you. They can suck wholeness out of you that you're trying so very hard to put together. And I, I think the, the the further we get down the track and the more healed we become, the more normal... Um, to other people we appear, then they forget that this is something that we deal with daily. And for them to sit there and want to bring up this thing in the middle of a social gathering, you know, shoots us back into a dark spot that they have no idea uh, what it's like to have to confront. Um, Because we're normal to them. You know, you don't seem to be struggling anymore They don't understand that this is a daily struggle for us, that this is something that we have to manage on a daily basis. And as we progress, we just manage it better than we ever did before. But that doesn't mean that we still don't
1: manage it. And that's the key, is that there comes a time when you have to filter out people and sometimes it is progressive. Yeah. People come into your lives for a reason and a season, and depending on the state of recovery that you're in, you may hold on to them longer than you're supposed to. And I yep, I, I know that, good. I and I know that, and it's because they're familiar to you. You say, you know, they've been yeah. here from the beginning, and so they're going to be here till the end. And sometimes mm-hmm. they may be at the beginning, and then you need to make a decision, do I go further down the road? with them or is this time for me to say you know farewell and there's a way to say farewell to people and maintain a connection with them without being connected and, and, and i'm going to say that again because I, I need for that to be understood is that you can be connected to them through what you've already experienced your past that's a connection that you're yeah. not going to be able to break and your presence, See, I think that's the- that, yeah.
3: No going. No go on. That's very good.
1: Yeah. So that's that's your past. You know, you're you're forever connected to them in your past. And then in your present, while you're making that decision whether you want to continue on with them into your future, then that's when you can sever that connection. But you're still connected to them to a certain degree. But you don't have to be with them. Yeah. You don't have to be and with them. There is. There is. Yeah.
3: That's yeah. why I use so, the term "walk, walk with me," because mm-hmm. there were some people that I just simply walked away from. Didn't say anything. Yeah. I just walked away. From. I continued to walk, and they were trying to pull me back into having the old conversations and talk. It's like you know what? Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't need to talk about my nightmares or my daymares anymore
0: I mm-hmm. because
3: mm-hmm. I've I've moved beyond that in terms of managing it. Mm-hmm. So if you want to keep on going back and reliving that for me or like vicariously through me then I don't I'm not walking with you anymore and I think it's very important to us to give, as you said to give ourselves permission to graduate and and that I think a soft graduate is important because the the trauma of confrontations and trauma is an overused word but the the a harsh confrontation um on an emotional subject to people that are dealing with what we're dealing with on a daily basis is not what we need. Whereas a quiet walk away without a confrontation and just simply changing the schedule, taking longer to respond to a text message or a call or an email and just putting distance as we continue to walk on, I think is a very productive uh, a productive um, way to do it people some people won't agree with that. They say they say that you need to sit down, confront, draw a line in the sand and renegotiate boundaries. I've found that with voyeurs that doesn't work because the voyeurs has this they have this touch of narcissism on them where they want to be the centre of whatever that conversation is. And I've found the best thing you can do with voyeurs is to put distance. Um, social distance, you know, real social distance, not some of this other stuff, but like real emotional distance is probably a better way to put it. Uh, between you and them. Um, and it gives you breathing room to continue to grow because they will never grow with you. Uh, they will always be in their spot. As you said, they were helpful in the past. They're not going to be necessarily helpful in the future.
1: And again, Dr. King, the, the thing about that is that I can, I can express this truthfully to the audience and say, there is a time when that relationship, if you are spiritually connected and safe, that there is a nudging in you, it's time to walk away, it's time to let go of this person and you need to move on. Because sometimes we get told to let go and move on internally before we actually are ready to let go externally, if you would. And so we yeah. belabor the point and we carry that that relationship and we keep carrying it because there is a, a fond memory or two with that person and you really aren't ready to say goodbye to that person. And then when it comes down to the wire where the deadline, you, you've gone way past the deadline of letting go something drastic will happen to cause yeah. you to let go. Yeah, and
3: you've got to use those as keys. Yeah, you're correct.
1: Yes. And so it's like when you don't let go when you're supposed to let go of the people who were there and they were there as lawyers, then something drastic will come along and cause that. To go away, it will either be a life and life or death situation, but they will have to go, and it's better for you to let them go freely
0: yeah, without having
1: to be forced to let them go.
3: Yeah, I think the other point with that, Patricia, is um, sometimes there's a sense of a false sense of obligation because we know mm-hmm. what it's like to um, to be alone and we know what it's like to struggle emotionally, and we know how much we put value in relationships, and we don't want to be those people who treat people like we've been treated, And we, we, but we hang on to the wrong ones. Uh, you know, there's that, that principle of, you know, the, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And um, I've always found that, um, you know, you get 80% of your return from the 20% of your relationships, the old 80-20 rule.
0: But we don't
3: identify the 20% of the quiet ones that walk with us. It's the other 80% that take up most of our emotional bandwidth that are just noise. And I I think we need to give, you know, the Bible talks about us assessing fruit and being fruit assessors. Um, And I think we have the right and ability, and we should, assess the fruit of people around us. And don't judge them, but assess them, saying, well, this is a good apple, this person... I nourish them and they nourish me, that concept. This is Some people, they just nourish you, and that's good, and other people, you just nourish them. But if you have too many people where you're just the one that's nourishing them, then you need to assess that fruit and realize that at eight, those 80% of people in your life, they can only take up 20% of your time. Because if not, then you will get out of balance and you'll end up being emotionally depleted. And all of us who have come through childhood sexual abuse, Understand that navigating and managing our emotional well-being for stability is the most important thing we do.
1: And, and I know for those of you who are tuned in and listening, you probably think like, "Where is this going?" And if you've listened to my broadcast enough, is that I am having an organic conversation with Dr. King because to lay the foundation for this interview is is critical. I've interviewed a lot of different people who have experienced child sexual abuse from strangers, from mothers, from fathers, from friends, and they've come from all walks of life, all walks of life. And I've treated each one of them individually, and so that's what I'm doing today. As I always do. And I am at his dedication. At at the dedication of his book. And there is like in one sentence. We have been talking on this one sentence. And this is why you you cannot read someone's life once. You have to read it and reread it and reread it. Because you will never get it in one sitting. So just in the dedication of his book. If you are looking to be provoked in your thoughts about the who, what, why, when, where, and how, you could stop right there at his dedication and think about that. What does he mean by somebody standing with him and walking with him? Because not one time in here, now I know they did, right, because you said to the voice on the other end of the phone, the light that guided me home. But you put a lot of emphasis on people who stood and walked with you. And sometimes to stand and walk with somebody means you just need to be quiet. You just, you just, yeah. you know, just their their presence there is enough. They don't have to say anything. There are some people who are like that. And then there are some people who have to talk. But when you're trying to navigate this, just knowing that somebody's standing there, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to have the answers. You don't have to fix it or anything. And that's, that's a hard lesson. But there was something that came to my mind um, about the Roman Empire and how they would have the gladiators come out and they would have them fight each other or have them fight animals. And they would the people would ooh and ah. And, you know, one minute it looked like they were... Cheering for the gladiator, the next minute they were cheering for the animal, or they were cheering for the underdog, or then they were cheering for the villain. That is what voyeurism is. It's it's spectating on the condition of another individual. So you have one gladiator fighting an animal, or another, or another gladiator and you've got thousands and thousands of people occupying the stadium that's a one to many relationship and that one person is not just having to fight within the arena with them another gladiator and and just say the other gladiator is what happened to them represents what happened to them and they're having to fight for their lives against that other gladiator Right, while other people look on, yep. and you don't know whether I, the crowd is cheering you on, or yep. you know hoping for your demise, and that's the sad that's condition. That, Go yeah, ahead, yeah.
3: And that and that comes to that second line in the dedication, is the voice on the other end of the phone. You know, on two occasions, it was Melissa. And, uh, I know it was. <laughs> Yeah yeah, And on, on two occasions knew, yeah. she took a phone call um, Actually it was probably Well probably three uh, Two were when I was I was told At that stage that um, By uh, someone who was Very close to me then that I'd never get better And the best thing I could do was to remove myself From the planet And on those two occasions mm-hmm. She just randomly rang me To talk about some work because we worked together And um you know, I was sitting in the backyard with a bottle of bourbon and a, and a and a gun and thinking about how best to, you know, just weighing the balance of is it possible to move forward. And the other time was when you read the article in there about the great sausage incident in, in um, I believe it was Santa Fe, uh, where I, I was standing in front of a cabinet in a, a Whole Foods trying to decide whether to have beef sausages or chicken sausages for lunch and the weight of that decision, you know, it's the way life is totally overwhelmed me and here I am you know, 6 foot, 220 pound, burly man with a beard sobbing uncontrollably with snot in his moustache and his beard trying to make the decisions and, the, and this guy in this walks up in this uh, Whole Foods and says sir, are you okay? And it's like, Yeah, I I'm fine, do I get a sausage or the beef? You know, you thought I was some crazy guy. And um, I, no one would answer the phone. I, I tried to ring um, one particular person at the time and they didn't want to pick up. And and then I rang Mel. And uh, she just calmly talked to me and told me that I was allowed to buy both chicken and beef sausage. And why don't I do that? And I went, oh, okay. Brought chicken and beef sausage and went back to my hotel. And... Just that soft voice at the end of the phone, um, you know, basically talked me out of this panic attack I was in because, it was, you know, it was a very difficult phase of things. And I think that's what I mean by calling me home, you know. I think all of us want and long to have someone who will be our true north because we, we do get confused in the early stages of recovery as to what is true and what is real, and who can we trust? And if all you've got is voyeurs in your life, people who are wanting emotional vampires, and you don't have that one person, or maybe you're blessed to have two, uh, but for me it was one person just saying, trust me, this is how you get home from this thing. This is how you survive. This is how you get through. Uh, Then it's very, very difficult uh, to make it. I had years without that. And when I, when Melissa found me, it was, um, you know, it was amazing the difference and impact it made.
1: One person can make a difference. One a major difference. A difference. Yeah. From suicide mean- or
3: death to life. Yeah, yeah that's exactly yeah. right. You don't need a whole bunch. You just yeah. need... I, I've always thought that if, you, if we die with, you know, enough friends to fill one hand, we die very rich. And the average yeah. person in America does not have one true friend. We're the loneliest nation on earth, just about. And um, okay. to be able to have two or three people that will speak to your greatness in your most broken times is a gift from God that um, is so massively overlooked. Um, And it's greater and will have more of an impact than all the therapy in the world. It's just that voice saying, no, it's okay. Come follow me for a little bit. We'll walk this way. And you'll come out of the dark into the clearing and it will be okay again.
2: You know? It
0: will be okay. It will be
1: okay. And then... I'm moving to your forward.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And for me, your all-time favorite quote: "The heart <laughs> is an emotional memory of what happens in your life." And for people who are cognitive, people, like this is this is this is like, you know, emotions. <laughs> emotions that we all have emotions. We all have emotions. Some of us have them more or less than the other, but we all have emotions. And they do things to us. I mean, uh, you talk about the dopamine and and all of that in the book. And, And they do things to us, depending on if we're in that frozen state, if we're and that flight or, um, or, you know, fright state of mind. And what's in us, what's been done to us is what is in us. What comes out of us is what we do to what's been done to us. And, And I'm going to say that again because what's in us is what's been done to us. But what we do with what's in us, is what we do To what's been done to us Your response To what's been done To you Is key yeah. and, and I say this um, As we close the show Every time is Make no permanent decision Over a temporary thing Because good, tomorrow good. will come Tomorrow will come But you have to stay alive To see tomorrow And if you believe that tomorrow will not be better or present you with, I I, I, I don't even want to say be better because tomorrow may be worse than the day before, but the only way that you can fight for this, and, and sometimes we're tired of fighting. We don't want to fight. We're tired of fighting. And the war for your life is real. The war for your life is real. And I've, I've been a history major before I became a history major, if you would, um, in school. Yeah, and under, understanding the war, that inside of a war there are battles. So a war consists of many battles. And in this life that we've been given, we were given a life that is a war and we have to fight the battles within the war. Some wars will end, and you may have more losses than you do wins, and then a new war will start, and you will come out totally victorious. But the way that I have found to come out of wars with more wins than losses is, is that I lean into my faith. Because you can't, you, you're a spiritual human being. And if you are not connected to a spiritual source, and for me, that's God, then everything else, all of your, your battles within your wars become losses. It's it's hard to navigate. People people want to pick and choose what they want to do. And so this is not a sermon. I'm just simply saying is that when he talks about, True north, you have to have your compass reset. Sometimes your compass will get crushed and broken and annihilated, and it can't be repaired. It can't be repaired, but it can be restored or replaced. And that's what I found out is that in that broken state, the compass, the moral compass is just decimated. But when you come into a relationship, a spiritual relationship that will take that broken and give you a new compass and, and, and set that compass in the center of you. And, and this is why you see so many different world religions, people pick and choose what they want, and that's convenient. And the path that they take is is a broad path. And the Bible talks about, you know, that there is um, a narrow way and that's the way that we should walk in and then there is the broad path that everybody walks in to so if you truly want to be reset and synchronized and, and I say that sincerely because I know what it is to be out of sync I know what it is to be out of sync and it is full of chaos it's, it's full of chaos and when you have people who themselves are voyeurs, narcissistic or codependent is that they they live off of your energy. Vampires. Vampires, you know, energy stealers. They live off of your energy. And if your energy is full of chaos, the more energized they get. And by the time you've expended your energy in the chaos, you come out and you're drained. But they're still standing there looking at you like are they going to get up? (laughs) Are they going to get up? Yeah. And if you get up, then they're surprised. Because the trauma and the chaos that you just exhibited and exuded should have been enough to cause you to self-destruct. And all I can tell you is is that when you feel like you are about to implode, implode, and and this happened years ago, and I know nobody – you know, believe this because this story did not make the news but I was walking downtown and in front of me not directly in front of me, somebody imploded. I mean they literally combusted in front of me. And I wasn't old enough to comprehend it at all. Uh-huh. And as as I have had one more occasion for that to happen in my life where someone that I worked with imploded. Um, just, just totally just disintegrated and they were diabetic and I found out that you know there is there's a certain place that a diabetic can get to when they are not healthy that will cause the body to just combust and yeah. I, I haven't studied that out enough but it's, it's real I mean that's what, to me, a voyeur a, a is. is somebody who is standing by waiting for you to self-combust.
3: Yeah, and that's they were, right. They get their jollies off that. You know, just like a sexual voyeur, yeah. like standing watching through a window as someone are intimate, they want to stand and watch through the window of our souls at something intimate, which is, you know, more our lows than our highs. Yeah,
1: yeah. So your all-time favorite quote is the heart is an emotional memory of what happens in your life but what happens in your life is not up for display it's like who is worthy of your story who is worthy of your your pain who is worthy of your oh who's worthy of your pain but who's worthy of your joy your victory? Because some people will yeah. come along and celebrate with you. <laughs> they'll yeah. they'll they'll come to the you know, to your victory and act as if they were part of it. That, you know, you're the reason why you're victorious is because of them. And that is yeah. so far from the truth. So it's like who you allow in if if somebody has to be the gatekeeper and in your life. <clears throat> So different people play different roles when they come and stand and walk with you. Sometimes, you know, they're keeping the gate. You know, sometimes they're making sure that you're you're standing and that you, you're steady and you're hydrated. You've got what you need for the battle that you're in because you're in a war. And so every day that you wake up, it's, it's either the same battle or it's a different battle. But um, I, I remember as... A child being introduced to the pads dispenser. Do you remember that, Jock King? I mean, they made a comeback. Yeah. The pads dispenser. Yeah. And I do. remember being, yes, I remember being introduced to that. I probably was about five at the time, and there was a store called Woolworth. Yeah, yeah. And do you remember that? <laughs> yep. Yep. And. Yeah, and and there was a display at the front of the counter as they always, you know, put stuff where eye level for kids to see, and I saw Popeye. I remember the first one I saw was Popeye. Yeah. I remember And that one. You remember Popeye? Yeah. And yeah. I wanted that, and I said, what is that? It's Popeye, it's Popeye, it's Popeye. I want. I didn't really comprehend that there was candy. I just wanted it because it was Popeye. And when I got it and I was showed, you know, flip the lid back, Right, It's like, you know, you put the candy in and you flip the lid back and up pops a Pez, right? And then the next one, when you take that one off the top, then the next one pops up. And there was a time in my life that I can actually say is that that was the analogy of my life. It was like the memories that I was having that came flooding back to me was like a Pez and a Pez dispenser. And that's how yep. I, I had to deal with them because they there were so many triggers, there were so many flashbacks that it was almost as if God took them and put them in a past dispense and says, okay, we're going to deal with them one at a time. You can't deal with all of them at once. We're going to deal with them one at a time. And that's where I, I believe that scaffolding and that structure, there, there has to be structure in <clears throat> in your life because when you've been in chaos, having a chaotic um, therapy experience is not the answer. You have to have structure. You have to rebuild and have boundaries because people who have been sexually abused or been violated or in any shape, form, or fashion have had their boundaries desecrated. I mean, it's like, you know, there were no boundaries. There were no boundaries. Is that you were fair game and there were no boundaries. So then you create what's your space, you know, how close do I want you to stand to me, you know? Um, do I want you to touch me? How do I want you to touch me? You know, when you're standing in my presence face-to-face, how close can you stand to me face-to-face? Do you know what I'm saying? And it's like, you know, don't touch me if you, yes, you don't did. ask me. Ask me first before you touch me. Um, ask me first before you hug me, ask me first before you walk up behind me. I mean, literally, I, I can say that there was a time in my life where I that was the extent of my boundaries, It was that you could not walk up on me suddenly, you couldn't touch me suddenly, you couldn't embrace me suddenly, uh, especially if I didn't know you. You know, people have this tendency of wanting to grab and hug and, and all this kind of stuff. And I, you know, I'm... I will say that you know, I am a person who can do that, but there was a time in my life where somebody just coming up to me and grabbing me and holding me and touching me without my permission was unacceptable. was absolutely unacceptable. Yeah. And it would put me into a dark space. and I would be standing there having a meltdown inside, but on the outside, I'm looking like I'm okay but I'm really having a meltdown on the inside because why didn't they ask me if they could hug me? Why didn't they ask me if they could touch me? Why, you know what I'm saying? So I, w- I would question, you know, I would never do that. You know, why, why would you do that? You know, you don't know me like that. So boundaries for a person who has been abused on any level, resetting those boundaries is huge. It's really, really huge. And I can only say that, um the doctor who wrote this forward, I'm not going to give her name out on here. Um, but
3: Katarina, yeah, yeah,
2: she
1: but at the end, yeah, at the end of each chapter, they you know she talks about how you and and Melissa share your individual perspectives. and that she felt like that was a very important element. And it illustrates the struggles and victories that the family members and friends of people with PTSD go through. Now, I know that the front of your book, you know, talks about living well with PTSD, but I have since learned this term called complex PTSD. And I believe that yours is the complex PTSD because there's different... Varieties of PTSD out here on the market, and so they, to me, the complex PTSD better defines somebody who has gone through trauma of of a sexual nature as a child at any you know any level, um, you know, at any level, and and so it's just, um, yeah. Yeah, co- complex
3: PTSD. P- I called it PTSD, uh, dealing, living well with PTSD because, you know, complex PTSD is a, is an aspect of PTSD and um, I wanted to appeal to a wider audience because the book deal with it, deals with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder
0: or mm-hmm. post-traumatic mm-hmm. stress injury. Mm-hmm.
3: And I wanted to be as broadly encompassing as I could. And um And a lot of my friends are police and and veterans and serving military people. And they cannot connect with complex PTSD, but they can connect with PTSD. But people who are being sexually abused can connect with PTSD. So it was the utilization of a term for the wider audience. Um, And as you said, understanding that there's different nuances for different aspects of it. And I I suppose I didn't really want to get down in the weeds on, on... on the different types of, you know, shades of post-traumatic stress disorder. It's all a brain injury. Um, I wanted to just try and speak to the larger audience and help as many people as I could. as many
0: people as I could.
1: And that is what is is key. That's that's what's key is that overall is that as many people as you can possibly help. And that that is what And I don't know what happened but we're having an that's echo. That's what's key is that overall the delay is that to as many people as you can help. Okay. Dr. King, yep,
0: yeah. okay, yeah.
1: We had that that feedback, and I was trying to figure out where the feedback was coming from. There was like a delay yeah. in the feedback, so I think I found it um, but i'm I'm just kind of stepping through your book. I want people to buy this book and and like I said, I've actually attended um one of his public sessions of chatting with the author. And um, you can't you can't take his book in in one sitting. You can't take him in in one sitting <laughs> because there's not enough time. There's not enough time in the yeah. day. You know, you could I, I could sit and listen to you all day. Honestly, I could. Um, well, thank you. Because hey, I'm, I've I'm someone, trying. I've got,
3: I've, got I've got someone very special here with you. Mel's just turned up, and when you were talking Hi, about Mel. battles. Here she is She's talking about battles I just thought I'll share the mic with her And um, I thought she might be able to speak to the whole issue of Dealing with battles
1: Hey there Hi Mel, how are you? Good,
4: good I was uh, pointing out uh, My Mel's turn Um, I think it's at the end of chapter Two Yeah, chapter two Um, It's it's about um, dealing with the, the tendency towards victimhood and how that was a really a, a big part of John's fight. He, he never saw himself as a victim and was really, you know, sort of just focused on the battle of recovery. And he needed people that would, that would rally with him and uh, sort of stand beside him in a fight. And if you, you consider, you know, soldiers in a battle— they don't have time to um, be necessarily, like, from the outside looking in, you wouldn't see them being nice to one another. There's they're some of the sort of polite society things that aren't present because they're in the middle of a war. And so you have a shorthand way of communicating. You have, um, you know, sort of structures in place um, that – uh, I think other people don't have, and so our our sort of um, battle stance was a little bit confusing. I think at times to other people on the outside looking in. Uh, but you know, I think if you're if you have folks who are walking with you and trying to help you, that 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 doesn't always make sense to uh, the broader audience of people around you. And
1: and that's just um, I, I think I think overall, Melissa, is that people like I was saying with John is that people want to peep. What is it? That's that's it. That's it. That's the that's the generic term for a warrior. The peeping tom, right? <laughs> yeah. So when when you have the peeping toms who want to see the ashes blow away, that those are the people that I think are the the most elusive of the people. And when you're in a battle and someone is trying to tell you how you're doing in the battle, it's like who has someone on the front line if in a war, in an actual war, right? Assessing them On how they're doing who, who does that? You know, you're out there yeah, And you're shooting right. no at one. the enemy Huh? Yeah, that's right That's
0: very right, it's very true
1: You know, you're, you're shooting at the enemy So you're trying to make sure that You return home safely And that you fight Nobody's on the front line criticizing you I mean, hopefully they're not Man, you know, do, do you see how many bullets It took for you to shoot and, 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 and to hit your target, <laughs> you know, now yes. we're out of ammo. You know, that that may be a post-assessment, but during the heat of the battle, you don't need that. You don't need that, that assessment and the way that you came alongside of him um, on uh, page 62 and the way that you talk about how you still stand with him. Because that's if, if you look at um, Mel's turn, I mean, honestly, if you look at that, she's just telling you is that, you know, there's highs and lows. Um, there are days when he's exhausted and he needs to lay down. Well, okay, if you have someone who can allow you to do that in your life, and that's what's key. I think that when, when we're in a war, remember that the war is the theme, and then beneath that you have these you know, sub-battles going on inside of this major war this major, you know, you know, event. But you have all these different little battles and big battles that are going on inside of this war, this huge war, right? If you put all the pieces together, it's a huge war going on. And I remember, I don't know where it was, but I think it was on um, probably a cop uh, program. And they said, you know, I don't want this person to be my partner because if they are... Traumatized and they won't pull their weapon, then my life is on the line. So yeah, having some having someone there with you when you need to have your back covered, when you need to have your front covered, that can handle that. Now I'm pretty sure that it has been draining and has had drained you, but then obviously there are times on the uptimes that he's able to replenish and help you recover from the chaos.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, We, we talk about that just a little bit in the book that like I came, I came to the war with my own set of struggles and demons and, and John has helped me as well every step of the way. I think, I think the important thing is to help each other keep the, like you said, the larger war in mind. You know, we're winning. I mean, if you, you read the end of the book, we've already won. Um, so you just keep that in mind. And if you're having a hard day or, or you're in the middle of a hard little skirmish, like you said, um, that if you have someone there who can remind you that, you know, it, in the end we win, we win. Um, then I think that all for the better and and on my side and on John's, like you know, everybody needs somebody to stand in their corner with them.
1: And you know, I really am walking through this as as the spirit is leading me to walk through this. And so hear me hear me out on what I am about to say on this is that. The flashback of 1967 and then the flash forward. That's what I'm going to call it. So flashback in 1967 and, and the flash forward, right? Um, because you go from 67 to 2008. And so if you think about the flashback and the flash forward, and then you basically... I'm sorry, I'm doing the math, 2008, 1967, 41 years, 41 years, and that basically, it takes 40 years to build a generation, is what I've uncovered, you know, there's 10 years to a decade, right, so that's four decades that have gone by, basically, since 1967 in his life, and growing up in that period, we had major, major upheaval in the 60s. So, someone who has been traumatized, and and I can say this um, as best as I can, is that I remember the 60s. I remember 67. I remember 66.
0: Um,
1: you know, I I can go you know back to to different things, but I remember certain things that were happening in the 60, 66, 67, 68, 69, 70. So, you know, a child who's been traumatized and you're standing, I can just imagine you, John, you know, having the same vision that I was having in the 60s of watching uh, President Kennedy's assassination, watching Martin Luther King, the Meg Evers, um, the, the lynchings, the mobbings, the burnings, the lootings, just like we're having now. Okay. And, and I never thought I would see that again. But here we are. We're already traumatized. Do you understand the thing is that nobody is is thinking about, okay, what effect is watching and observing these events on TV having to a child that's living in chaos, that's living in trauma? because all of those things are woven into the fabric of our lives. is that the trauma that you were enduring in sixty seven and before and beyond. Are all woven in when two thousand um, one came, when when nine eleven, the World Trade Center event came. I can tell you is that that triggered me, and I cannot, for the life of me, understand why it triggered me the way
0: that it did. Um, because let's let's speak about that I, for
3: just a moment. Yeah. Um, because so and so I talk about this in the in the book. Um, Often people who haven't experienced prolonged trauma and it is prolonged trauma, which is the key difference with complex PTSD is that they have one bucket of emotions and that one bucket of emotions is stable most of the time. And if a single event happens, it shakes up their emotional bucket and that emotional bucket gets in turmoil and there's water splashes around and then it all settles down. How I my, my analogy for people with complex post-traumatic stress disorder or post-traumatic stress um, related non non-prolonged, so be it military or police, is that there's a series of buckets. There's a work bucket, there's a home bucket, there's a um, a memory bucket, um, there's could be a financial bucket, you know, and, and they're all re- related, but they sit all together in a one pool. And then when you've got something like nine eleven happens for someone who has experienced prolonged trauma. And it, there's this underlying sense of uncertainty, of lack of protection and fear. When it happens, it's literally like the entire thing goes crazy. And it affects, it slops into all the buckets. So you can't compartmentalize it like someone who has is, is been through it. They're sitting in Kansas. This happens in New York in the financial industry. they farmer going, that's just touched our nation. I can be enraged at this one thing. Whereas for someone who has had prolonged trauma and a sense of powerlessness all their life, it's like, oh, shit, this is this is my security, my safety, my well-being, you know. And they instantly everything gets rattled, and and I think that's why um, we have to be aware of what's happening around us today, that and why we are feeling unsettled um, with with some of these things. You know, my background is. Melissa's charity. I'm Australian Aboriginal. So there is a sense of there's generational and cultural trauma, which is a reality and something I'd love to do some study on at some point. Um, and, and we've got whole communities where trauma has been a part of it. In, in, in America, the, the the trauma among um, Native Americans is something that's so massively under-researched and, and, and not looked at. And taking into account generational trauma and the fact that I believe, I believe PTSD... Can be, can be a generational thing, that it can be relived in generational things. So, so what we're seeing now, I think in parts of our African-American communities in America is that if we were to look at it logically, I mean just logically, I'm not trying to, to have, you know, political arguments, but if we look at it logically um, African-American communities by and large, I mean just by and large statistically, have more opportunities now than they've ever had before yet we seem to be to triggering a continual series of events which take us into victim mode and and it's re it's reliving these things from the past that if we're logically looking at them don't seem to be related and that's exactly what 9-11 does it triggers something that seems to be unrelated yet it still triggers it and we can say there are relations and this has been the case and we can call up these things but if you know, if we just break it down and, and look at the on a, on, a, on a much smaller, a micro level, not a macro level, that there that this overwhelming sense of a national trigger, be it 9/11 or this year, it's like it doesn't really make sense. Yet it makes sense. But what it does is it makes sense for people like you and I, Patricia, is because we understand that once you start to shake our buckets, all our buckets get shaken. And we lose a sense of proportion. It's like, why am I being? What you said was brilliant. Why am I being triggered over nine eleven? And it's something that's happening internally. And and this visceral response to these things is very real, but is also very illogical in some way. And I've had to work through that um, with my, my Aboriginal heritage be, be, because there's things that happen to us, you know, very like you know very similar to the um the african-american and the 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 um the aboriginal experience here with the natives uh, americans in america you look at it but then you have to stop and say okay that was that happens in the 60s and 70s that's not happening in the 2000s why am i getting treated by that event let's go pro- through the process where is that process coming from what is causing this trigger are these triggers related no they're not why am i triggered? and you have to break that thing down because that's the only way that people like us who face what we face on a daily basis can make sense of it all and stay rational Christ-centered people in the midst of it all knowing that all things work out for good. Does does that make sense?
1: It does because I've lived it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah but have. for people, yeah, but for people who are spectators, it doesn't make sense. And it and, and so we, when you talk about the 80-20, I think that we have 80% spectators and 20% people who have um, <laughs> experienced things in, from a different perspective. But the sad thing of it is, is that the people, I, I remember sharing this with someone, I was uh, speaking at a transformational hospital, and in that hospital I had um, 17 to seventy was my age range and they were all in the same same treatment facility right they were either in there because they were mainly uh, addicted to drugs not necessarily street drugs but prescription drugs then street Uh drugs and then some of them had suicidal ideations um, and some of them were self-harming right and I remember this one particular day that I was there, and the 17-year-old was sitting closest to the door. And I said, okay, I guess she says, you know, I want to be as close to the door as I possibly can yeah, so that you I
0: get can
1: out get I Get out of here. Then, Who's this yeah, crazy so woman? From, yeah, so from 17, she's at the door, and the woman who is the oldest is furthest away from the door. So I'm I'm just setting the scene for you. So they're all in chairs around the wall. And so this is a room just like a regular room. So the chairs are lined up around the wall and I'm behind the podium. And I'm looking at them and I'm looking up at the clock because the clock is ticking in front of me, right? And and I said, you know, to the 17 year old, look over at the 70 year old. She was a woman, I said, is this who you want to be? And I said to the 70 year old, is that can you remember when? It all started for you. And I said, what is it that you don't see in this room? And they just sat there because most of them were like, you know, uh, they had put them on medication, right? So they were just like spacey to begin with. And I said, yeah. what you don't see in this room is the person who put you here.
0: Yeah. Very well done. And that's still
1: I said, you don't see the person who put you here. I said, because they're probably eating breakfast. They're probably getting ready to go to the mall. Yep.
0: They're probably getting ready to go they for a walk in the park.
1: They, they don't <laughs> have a care in the world about yep. what you're going through.
3: Yeah, okay? I've said I that said, to people about um, my parents. They've asked, well, you know, have you ever thought of suing them or chasing them? I was like, they don't think about me. So, I'm not going to think about them. It's, you know, because you can't feel and confront it. That's very well said, Patricia.
1: And, and I says, you know, so you owe it to yourself is that if they are intent on you destroying yourself, you owe it to yourself to not self destruct. So, yep. your response to what has happened to you has put you here. Yes. And you have a choice to make. You know, I and I says, you know, and, and I started, you know, saying to them is that I could tell you what happened to me. But I'm not going to, but I can tell you is is that I'm here because of the choices that I made in response to what happened to me. I'm standing behind this podium because of the decisions that I made in response to what happened to me. And and I, I would say to them is that I hope one day that if I see you on the street that I don't recognize you.
0: Yes. And well I done. said,
1: because who I, who I see today is not who you can be. And they just they just looked at me. And I remember this one man uh, came up to me. Um, and, and But before, before I say that, I said to them, I said, can you look up at the clock and see what time it is? And I had them all look up at the clock. And I said, so this time tomorrow, 24 hours from the time that you just looked up, I said, you're going to have the opportunity to make a series of decisions. Okay, and I hope the decision that you make will be the choice to live and the choice to do your life better than you've done it right now that brought you here. And I said to the 17-year-old, I don't want you to be the 70-year-old. Okay, and I said to the 70-year-old, look at how long you've been in this cycle. Is this how you want to end your life? So it was. It was like you know, I wanted them to reflect on that. You know, the room was full of equally of young and old, white, black. Just it. It was just the room was a representation of what you know we are in America. And, and I and I also think of a seventeen-year-old that like, she should be getting ready for prom. You no, know, she shouldn't be yeah. here. You, you know what I'm saying? So all, all the things in, <laughs> that I could think of uh, in my mind that was just like you know, this is wrong. This is wrong. And the people who have done me harm uh, did not come to justice, you know? So I'm thinking, like, there is something wrong with the system that will not allow you to report and get justice, okay? And at the same time, when you look at your life, and as a member of the aboriginal community, I've studied that. Like I said, I'm a history major. Mm-hmm. And I've mm-hmm. seen a documentary on the uh, aborigines. And um, mm-hmm. I saw where they went over to Ireland, you know, where they sent them, shipped them off to Ireland, uh, some of the children and stuff. And it's horrible. It's it's, it's absolutely horrible. Yeah. <clears throat> and the condition still today of the Aborigines is it's horrible. Um, I <clears throat> this this thing of um, you know I don't want I don't want to go there. So let me let me let me let me <laughs> digress. Let me digress cause, I Yeah, I would go into a different I, I
0: space.
1: I would go into a different space. But my point is, is that all of us have to make a series of choices. And I remember going back to, I was at work, and my manager said to me, she said, Patricia, because at that particular time, uh, this was like right before 9-11 happened. And that's what I'm saying. Uh, 9-11 was very triggering for me because I was dealing with some things right before 9-11 happened from childhood, right? And I was still functioning. I was still highly functioning at work, and I'm in in technology, so I work with software. And um, my manager said to me, um, quite just point blankly, she says, Patricia, you are where you are today because of the choices that you've made in your life. And at that particular yep. moment, I know that she meant it for good. But at that moment, I was like, <clears throat> I yep. didn't choose that. You know, I didn't choose, yep. you know, what happened to me as a child. I didn't choose that for myself. But I was I was so deep into the trauma that was stirring up inside of me, right, that I couldn't quite process or comprehend what she was saying. So I didn't flip. And or say anything, and I just said okay, thank you. And I and and I keep recycling that conversation with her year after year. It sometimes it'll just come up, and and I'm thinking, I've made some very good choices in my life in spite of the things that have been done to me. But then I've also made maybe one or two choices that weren't so great that have carried over into my life. Do you know what I'm saying?
2: So, yeah, I think I, I think them, the fact
3: that you've only made yeah. one or two choices that aren't good, I think you're a hero. I've made like a gazillion choices that are really crappy. I was, um, to
0: minimize it, <laughs> I was trying to minimize it, John. You know, I, I was trying to minimize it. I was trying to minimize it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying
1: I'm not saying that I haven't made a lot of bad choices, but I'm saying that there is. I like, know that.
3: I know that. Particular. Um
1: some that have changed the trajectory of my life in, in ways that I would have never imagined, right? But God has worked it out for the good. But at the same yes, time amen. to those people who are out there listening, you're you're listening to someone um with Dr. Johnny King and his wife Melissa who not only has had to overcome and continue to progress past child sexual trauma but he is a part of the Aborigines. And if you don't know about the Aborigines, A-B-O-R-I-G-I-N-E-S, look it up. Because we're not going to get into that. I can bring him back and we can talk about that. But look it up, okay? And, and, and I can tell you that you can be ethnically traumatized. You can be culturally traumatized. You can be economically traumatized. You can be physically traumatized. You can be sexually traumatized. You can be financially, emotionally, intellectually. There are so many ways to be traumatized. And if you don't realize that these parts all create the sum total of who you are. So if you have not been allowed to have a healthy existence on any of these levels, if all of these levels have been assaulted, then all of these levels are going to experience chaos. Not all at the same time, because, but there are times Very when good. they all come together. And then that's when you've got total cluster. a hurricane. That's when you've got a hurricane that will either cause you to destroy yourself or destroy something or someone in your life.
0: And yeah, absolutely.
1: You know, so it's like to get healed. You, you Sometimes you find healing across the board, and sometimes healing comes in compartments. You know, this part of you will get yeah. healed, and this other part of you, and this other part of you, and this other part of you is still toxic. So it's a progression, and, and, and I still go back to the peasant dispenser. It's like, you know, one pops up, and you deal with that one, and you decide, okay, you know, am I going to eat this one, or am I going to put it back in the container and deal with it later? So when I say eat it, it it takes me to the parable in the Bible um, about where the prophet was instructed to eat the whole loaf. And he says, you know, why is that? You know, this is the same loaf, but part of it is bitter and part of it is sweet. And that's what trauma is. That's, That's what trauma is, but that's what truth is. Because to dispel trauma, you have to take the truth. And the truth comes with the bitter and the sweet. That's that's the reality of it is, is that some of us cannot heal because we cannot handle the bitter. We just want the sweet. But the bitter and the sweet is the balance, and the balance brings about the truth. It brings about wholeness. The reality of the bitterness is the things that have happened to you and your response to the things that have happened to you. The sweet is... Where you can get to the healing, the wholeness that you want, the restoration, the recovery, the rebuilding that you want. But in order to enjoy and embrace those, you have to deal with the bitter of what to so You cannot be in denial. You cannot be uh, disassociated. You cannot disconnect from the reality of what's happening. And so that term, yep, bittersweet. sweet. You know, the truth is bittersweet. The truth is bittersweet is that in order to be healed, in order to recover, you have to be able to handle the whole loaf. The whole loaf of what has happened to you is bittersweet. And there's another parable in the Bible where the water was bitter and the people were thirsty. And, you know, they would say, you know, throw the, the branch into the water and the water became sweet. So... Something bitter requires something sweet to offset it. But did the bitter go away? If the whole water was bitter, Dr. John, I I need you to just say, the the water was bitter, and you threw the branch in, and then it became sweet. Did the bitter water go away? The water was still there. But what you put in the water changed the water.
3: Come on now now you're and, preaching now this
1: is good well, I'm not trying to preach but i I, I want to people <laughs> out here because I, I'm reaching out to the audience of people that you are talking to and about whether you, I have an audience in Australia so this is this is why this is meaningful for us today is that I have a listening audience in Australia so speaking to the Aborigines in Australia and having my guest on the show who is a descendant of the Aborigines, okay, having someone on my show who is recovered and recovering from child sexual abuse, not from a stranger. And I talk to people about non-stranger danger. We always say don't go to the white van, don't go to the man or the woman uh, in the trench coat with the candy and, and the goodies and stuff like that. But woe unto a child who has to deal with the boogeyman from their own family line. That's a generational. So 40 years, 41 years from 1967 to 2008, that's a generation. That's a generation. It takes 40 years to build a generation. That's a generation of your life. you know what I'm saying? That it took for you to yes. implode. And some people say, why don't you report? Why didn't you report it? Why didn't you do this Is that? People people on the outside always want to tell you, well, you should have done this sooner or you should have said this sooner. That stuff is packed down so deep sometimes you may go to your grave and never even address it. I've seen it. I've seen it happen. But the fact that there are people like you who have come through being ethnically abused. And and it's not just being ethnically abused, the documentary I said, it's it's like ethnically being disinherited. Because an Aborigine uh, is descended from the natives of that land and the colonials, right? So you aren't colonial enough to be embraced by the colonials, and you aren't Aborigine enough to be embraced by the Aborigines, and then you go through the neglect and the abuse from your parents and their friends. And you add that into the genetics, the, the coding of who you are as a human being. That, that gets into you on a cellular level. That level of rejection and betrayal gets into you on a cellular level. So when you talk about the, the dopamine and things like that, it's like literally on a cellular level, somebody is writing on your, on, on your DNA trauma, trauma, rejection, bitterness, all this, resentment, all of this but in the midst of it is that you come up with a book and you hashtag it, deal with it. (laughs) You either deal with it or it will deal with you, right?
3: Yeah,
0: exactly.
1: And here we are. And and so I, I don't want to have any conversation with you that would be triggering, but at the same time, I wish that if you want to talk about what your parents did to you and your response once you had that implosion and the progression that you've made, I welcome you to say that uh, to the audience. We have 37 minutes. This show has gone, um, you know, very, very fluid. And I wanted to wait for that opportunity to bring that to you because I don't want you to say what you don't want to say. But to it's somebody, warm. a young man or a young woman who's out there and you have had to deal with trauma on levels that some of them will, it's like they've been traumatized, but they haven't been traumatized on the level that you've been traumatized. And so it doesn't make you a victim because you don't use the victimhood. You know, it's like it's like the victimhood is that the neighbors, in the hood who are victims there there's big money in victimhood big money in victimhood <laughs> you know victimhood. Yeah, there there's, is. there's there's, a whole neighborhood designed for victimhood and you made a decision not to live in the neighborhood
3: okay yeah. I, I wrote so, a, i wrote a quote yesterday and i posted it on, on instagram it says being vulnerable means putting ourselves in harm's way often for the sake of others being a victim means we leverage our past to demonize our opponents in the presence to accomplish our goals and i think that is the big difference between being vulnerable like someone like yourself and myself prepared to talk about it and being a victim which means i need to point the finger at someone and blame them now I understand there are people that are responsible for the things that they did to us but I can be vulnerable in talking about that and saying you need to take responsibility for that as opposed to trying to leverage the past and I think we're living in a time where uh, victims are pretending to be vulnerable when all they're trying to do is leverage their past over somebody else. Now that's, that's different than trying to get justice for an injustice and vulnerability is when you want to get justice for an injustice victimization is where all you're trying to do is get at someone for the sake of it um and and they can both seem very similar but one is completely self-absorbed and will ultimately destroy a human being on the inside whereas the other actually sets them free the truth does set you free and when you when you when you're able to reconcile with the truth and sometimes that truth as you said is that you will never see justice. And once you reconcile with that, you are free from being a victim. Whereas people who
2: insist
3: upon the justice because they are a victim and this justice has to come from this group of people, then sometimes it'll never be forthcoming. And you talked about in relation to my parents, you know, people have asked me, um, Yeah, you know, I, I, don't, I don't talk about my parents, I, I, I refer to them by their first names. And um, And if people ask me, about them I often tell people that I'm orphaned because uh, I, I don't it, it's not it's difficult for me to reconcile as a mature adult um, how people could treat a child the way that I was treated um, you know just talking about you know, being myopic and talking about my situation um, I, I find that difficult and, and ha- being a parent myself that they, they say that abuse you know people who are abused abusees often become the abuser well that's just not the case and I can't understand how people can do that. You know, I I know when it came to even bathing my children, um, I couldn't bath my children. And I didn't even have, understand what was going on inside. It's just internally the thought of me touching my children in any way that could be seen as... I don't know what it was. I, I didn't, hadn't had recall. I hadn't had all the memories about being abused. All, all I knew, there was something in me where it was anathema to me. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. So, and... My, my children I've been exactly the opposite I've been so overprotective of them to the detriment of my relationships with them at times I still now in one particular case with one of my kids um, I was so overprotective because I didn't understand why I was overprotective but I just never wanted to see them be in harm's way and so when it comes to um, my my you know my parents for one of a better term, um that, why, why haven't you sought justice? Why haven't you brought them to trial? Now, now in Australia, the, the, the terms for, for trial and things like this, there's not a, a limit term. You know, I could go back and I could take them to court for what they did, but it would serve no purpose. You know, you go into a court situation, it's not advantageous to someone who has um, been through child sexual abuse, and the job of the defence is to find hold in my arguments and the best way they can do that for someone with PTSD is to trigger a response. So I'm not going to put myself in a position where the so-called parents are in any place of power. The very best thing that I can do to graduate from any hold they've had over me is to just live my life successfully, You know, to be, to be loved, um, to raise the kids as best I can, um, to find joy and happiness in my life. And that's, I think, the very best revenge for want of a better term and the best justice that I could ever get. You know, I, I, the first sexual act I was involved in was the age of four. Um, and then the childhood is littered through this series of memories and it rolled into, you know, sexual abuse by scout camp and teachers and a whole range of different things. I think once that area gets broken in your soul, you become very susceptible and vulnerable to being taken advantage of. And, and that's why people who haven't been through it don't understand that it can go. They can be, you can be passed from person to person to person.
2: And random
3: people can just see that brokenness and smell that. The predator can smell that brokenness in your soul and they just take advantage of it. So people don't often understand that it's not something you're doing. You're not putting yourself out there. You're just, that's just the way it is. And so there was a series of parties I was taken to and a range of different things that, that was done to me. And it all accumulates in these these series of events. Uh, you know, a lot of my mother's friends and her academic friends at university were involved in these things and, a whole range of orgies, etc. So, you know, you you go through these things and you process these things. And often, when we're processing these things, we're looking for reasons and understandings and why it happened and how come these things. And and outside of an understanding of the of the depraved nature of human beings, which only really comes from a solid understanding of of scripture that that man is fallen and in his fallen state does atrocities to feed his own need. Outside of that, there is nothing. It is possibly exist to justify the behavior that they the things they did to me and i'm being a little myopic here or the things that were done to other people there's nothing that justifies it there's no way to justify it um and so once you come to understand that that it's the very nature of human being that's about the limit of the reason we should need um but it often isn't but it's often the the limit of the of the um understanding that we'll we'll ever get uh and once you can settle that in your soul then that gives you the ability to forgive now there's a radical difference between forgetting and forgiving um i forgive but i won't ever forget um both neurologically physiologically and also just cerebrally i won't forget what's happened to me in fact you know god doesn't ask us to have amnesia he asks us to have forgiveness and it's a different thing forgiveness is about setting Myself free from the entanglement of the past um, and forgetting is just, you know, and that it's just not going to happen um, because you don't, because of the nature of memories. Um, so, with processing all that happened to me as a child by my parents, there comes a point where it's like, you know what, I can release. And you mentioned honoring your mother and father. The term in Hebrew is to give weight to, to recognize that they were important and valuable with bringing you in the world, into the world. And also to honor means to not speak bad about. So even when I'm talking about them, I do my best to tell the truth but not speak bad about, if that makes sense. Um, and that keeps me out of being bitter. And, and bitterness, this root of bitterness you talked about, defiles everything. So I can speak about them, but I'm not bitter about them. Uh, because I've forgiven them but I haven't forgotten what they've done which means I can still speak about them and so the circle goes round and that circle actually becomes a foundation that I can build upon and not a pit that I can fall in if that makes sense. So when processing that series of things I am actually empowering myself to move forward in a very logical way. I'm empowering myself to go, you know what? I can move beyond these series of events that happened in my past, can move into a positive future, and I can actually bring those events forward. A lot of people talk about how you shouldn't bring things forward, don't drag it forward. I'm not dragging it forward, but my past is my past. I, I had oral sex with my mother, I'll never, and her friends, I, I can't escape that. Those things are just a reality. And the more I try and deny the truth of those things in terms of forgetting them in the process of how some people see forgiveness is the more they're embedded in my mind because it's an active effort to forget those. Now, if I just accept those things and I would walk forward with those things and I talk about this and deal with it, you know, turning, turning scars of shames in the Medal of Honor and all of a sudden, you know, there's these medals. I survived this. I dealt with this. I faced this. These are things that I am now very good at detecting, seeing, overcoming, and I can help other people with that. And I think that's part of the process when you were talking about visiting these hospitals and homes is that it actually gives you a platform to come out in a positive light and turn all things around for good. So as far as how I've processed what happened to me and what was done by very intimate family members, which is probably the if there's a level of betrayal in this whole thing, that's probably the highest level of betrayal. Those that were supposed to correct, direct and protect us, you know, abuse, violate and defamed us. Um, then, then that becomes very releasing. If, if that, I hope I've been, um, you know, make sense with this. It, it, it becomes a very releasing and empowering thing, because they no longer are the weight to my soul. They don't longer weigh me down. They're simply things that I'm actually, for one of a better term, proud of because I've overcome them, um, and it makes me the man I am today. And I am very comfortable with the man I am today. And that is with all the broken parts, that is with all the bad memories, that is with all the mistakes, all the regrets, all the divorces, all the financial struggles, all those things that I did as a result of um, my childhood, I can still live with them because they've made me who I am and I'm coming to like who I am. And so it becomes a very freeing and releasing thing And that's the whole concept with having to deal with this stuff and dealing with it as a book and as a philosophy is I don't have to deny it, I can own it. And in ownership becomes release and freedom. Never asked us to deny our past. He just said to bring our past to him. Um, We can't ever forget our sins, but we no longer have to be condemned by our sins. Um, So I, yeah, so there you go. There's a thought.
1: Well said, well said. And I embrace, you know, everything that you've said. And I will say that I remember the moment that I asked the question why is it that so many people seem to want to harm me, seem to want me to die? And I spent probably a while in that mindset. And then. All of a sudden, it was like, well, you know what? If they want to harm me, then I don't want to harm myself because then it would give them satisfaction. If they want yep. me to die, then I don't want to die because it will give them satisfaction. So the best thing that I can do is to take care of myself and live. And yep. so, I, you know, if, if they're so invested in my demise, then I have to be in even more invested in my survival, in my thriving. And that's when I, you know, it was like I had already come out of being a victim, right? It's like I, I said, okay, let me deal with this, okay? I don't want to be in this neighborhood. I don't want to be in this neighborhood. I didn't like the way that it felt. It was very heavy to live in that neighborhood of being a victim, right? So that's when I said, okay, I I was a victim. I was victimized. I was a statistic, and I, you know, still am a statistic, but I was victimized. That, That's done, now how I choose to live my life after being victimized now takes me into survival so I lived in the neighborhood of survival for a while and then that became um, dissatisfying it was like it's not enough to survive you know I don't want to just survive it it was like uh, dog paddling you get tired of dog paddling you know Yeah. and I said I don't want to just survive and then I thought okay um, what's after survival and and then it was like okay you need to thrive you need to be an overcomer and so the the bible says you know that we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony and then that was when i said okay i've got the blood of the lamb but i don't have my testimony i haven't had the courage to tell my story haven't had the courage to speak out And, you know, you get up, and I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I grew up in in a Pentecostal environment, right? And so we had this time in church where there was testimony service. And so you learned how to testify by listening to the people in front of you testify, right? Yes. And I was just, you know... I just want to thank God, da, 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 you know, I've been saved all day, no evil have I done, I just want to thank God for keeping me in my right mind, a portion of my health and my strength, and God has been good, you know, and and yeah. amen, you know what I'm saying, and so you stand up yeah. as a child, and so, you know, you're trying to say, okay, you know, uh, no evil have I done, but I'm thinking, but evil's being done to me, so how am I supposed to testify, okay. Um, so um, I want to thank God for a portion of my life, health and strength where my life is held, you know, and, and I'm constantly uh, having issues, um, you know. And so it's like you, you, I'm sitting here as a child listening to them testify and, and I'm trying to think, okay, what can I testify to? What can I say? You know? So uh, I want to thank God for a portion. They Sometimes they would say having a portion of my mind. I'm like, I don't want to just have a portion of my mind, you know, and so am I sane or am I not, you know, because to have a portion. I'm serious. I, I would have these thoughts as a child, and I would be analyzing their testimonies, and I would be thinking, like, I need all of my mind. I don't need a portion of my mind. God, why do I want to thank you for a portion of my mind and a portion of my life, health, and strength? I need all of it to endure what I'm going through because I'm sitting in church next to people who are abusing me. Yep. You know, and so then they would push me, you know, stand up and testify, and I'm like, help me to testify. I mean, literally, I would stand up and say, God, help me to testify, because all those things that that lady just said, I don't want those things, you know. And so when you grow up in that environment of people, I'm in a church, and I'm surrounded by people who are abusing me. You know, that that's yep. like, you know, you, where, where do you go to be safe if you can't be safe at church? Yeah. Where do you go to be safe if you can't be safe at home? Yeah. You know, you go to school, just like you said, that um, the, the smell of a person who's been traumatized is like um, a fragrance to the nostril of a perpetrator,
2: a yep. predator.
1: You know, they smell you before you even get there. They they can smell you. You know they can see yeah. you a mile away before you even come into their presence. They spot you. It's like they have this 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 spidey sense to spot the prey. So you know, yeah. they know that you're vulnerable. They know that you can you know that they can come into you and they know how to get to you. And then you wake up and you realize, you know, I you know I, I'm I'm in a worse Situation Than I was before This person said that they were this and this and this and this But in reality They were never any of that They just said that just so that they could get Close to me Then that makes you Okay, I can't trust my parents I can't trust my friends I can't trust my my, my schoolmates I can't trust um, the people in church I can't trust the people in the community I can't trust the neighbors You know, you grow up very distrustful very distrustful of people and what's your motive what do you want you know well what do you want from me and so you question relationships and you question people you know and and it's like okay what um what what are they really after and so you do become overprotective of what belongs to you whether it's your children whether it's your space and, you, you know, for me, I was very, very uh, protective of who I allowed in my home. And for some reason, I could I could pick up on people, you know, who yep. would come smiling, but something about them said that smile is deceiving. And if I waited long enough and waited it out, you know, eventually it would bear itself out, is that if I had a sense that that person was not, what and who they said they were, eventually they couldn't, keep, they couldn't keep the game up forever. So sooner or later, their true self would show up. And I said, Woo, I'm glad I did not let them in my life because they would get tired. You know, they can only keep that up for so long of trying to come at you, to try to pursue you, to try to, uh, you know, uh, conquer you, because that's what it is, is a conquest for them. You know, they need to conquer you. They need to infiltrate your life so they can divide you up, like dividing up the spoils and conquer you. That's that's the whole I idea of a perpetrator, is that I've gotta get into your life. They become obsessed with getting into your life. And once they get in your life, then they begin to desecrate your life and and, and defile your life. So now that they've broken down your walls, they've broken down your boundaries, now they conquered you, and now you're that trophy. You're that trophy. You know, you're you're that notch in the belt yep. for them. And yep. those are the people that are very, very outwardly looking as if they're all put together, but on the inside they are just. Uh, oh, what is the passage is about? Uh, being a whitewashed sepulcher full of dead men's bones. That they're bone collectors. You know, they should rattle when they walk because they've collected so many bones of people,
0: yeah.
1: of their victims. You know, and so forgiving yeah. God asks us to forgive uh, because He wants to be the one to judge. You know, is is that if we stand in the position of unforgiveness, then we put ourselves in the position to be judge and jury. You know, we're, we're the prosecutor, we're all of that, and all that does is turn itself on us. And so you cannot. When when you forgive and you don't forget because God doesn't require that level to for you know to forgive somebody you don't you don't forget what happened but you forgive yeah. because you need to be free and and I've studied like Jewish um, history and so you know this may be a little bit off but I remember reading and I think it was manners and customs Jewish manners and customs is I yeah, think the book. title of the book
0: yeah so, good, great yeah, book you know what
1: I'm talking about. And it would talk about how that if um, the penalty for crimes, the penalty for crimes. So if you murdered somebody, they would take the dead body of the person that you murdered, and they would tie it to you, and you would have to walk, and that that would be um, your 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 death sentence. Basically, because walking around with a body that is decomposing eventually kills the other the other person that is attached to. Yeah. Okay, and if you stole um, something, you know, then they would attach you to the person that you stole until you worked off what you stole, the value of what you stole. So there's just a lot of things that I learned about what justice would look like in the Jewish community if we actually had that kind of justice today. And, And I thought about that, and I said, that's what unforgiveness is, is that I'm walking around with a bunch of dead bodies, and it's killing me. I'm walking around with dead bodies attached to me. And I remember waking up from a dream and I was walking through the cemetery and there were all these hands reaching from the grave, grabbing at my ankle. And when I woke up, I heard the scripture, let the dead bury the dead. If you are living live, okay? Live amongst the living. Don't dwell in the cemetery and unforgiveness Makes you live in the cemetery of your past, the death of your past. You, you know what I'm saying? It's like uh, there's there are no flowers, there's no sunlight, there's nothing. Is that when you're in that level of despair, it's nighttime. It's it's midnight. <laughs> From dawn to dusk, it's midnight. It's in the evil time of the night that you're dwelling in the cemetery. You're dwelling in the cemetery and there is nothing good that comes out of the cemetery at night. I mean, there is stuff that go I mean, seriously, I, I, I kid you not, there's stuff that goes on in the cemetery that people don't even talk about. Um, but the biggest thing of it is is that forgiveness is your way to live and to move from being a victim into survival into being an overcomer because God wants us to be overcomers. Because he says that he has overcome this world And the only way that we can overcome What's happened to us Is that we have to abide in him We have to live, move and have our being in him And unforgiveness keeps us from living, moving And having our being in him And that has been my way of recovery My way of restoration and rebuilding my life And I say this to anyone Is that I'm not trying to tell you to choose God I'm telling you that for me the only way that I could do my life then and now is that I had to anchor myself in my faith. And my faith is in God and in God alone. And ultimately, at the end of the day, is that you can search and you can, um, you know, all over the world for whatever you want. You can practice whatever you want to practice. But that thing that you're looking for, you will, you you know, you're not going to find You're not going to find the truth until you take on the whole truth. And the whole truth is, is that there's only one, there's only one way. There's only one way. And, you know, you can try all these other ways and all these different paths. If you want, eventually you still come up empty. This is the only path that I know that you don't come up empty. You don't come up empty because it's like you drink that water that will cause you never to thirst in the way that you thirsted because being in bitterness is being in the desert without a drop of water to drink. It's a very dry and thirsty place. It's a very dry and thirsty place. And I, I can attest to that because I've lived it, I've been there, I've done it, and I tell you is that it is it is that that thing that can never be satisfied. It's, it's a fire that can never be put out, um, that uh, it, it rages. And, and I can equate it to the old ovens that used to have the dials, you know, you go from zero to 500, you know? And so depending on the day that you're having, you could go from zero to 500 just like that. And there are other days yeah. you can just be sitting on warm. Other days you broiling, <laughs> you know? And I started to think about my life like that. I literally started to think about my life. Okay. I'm angry. Uh, I'm enraged. And I am at a point where if I don't turn the dial down, I'm going to boil and I'm going to explode, you know, because you can only keep an oven on boil for so long and it will burn. Yeah. Yeah. And everything around it will burn. And, And so for me, knowing that someone like yourself, having the experience that you've had culturally, ethnically, uh, you know, familiarly on every level that you are attesting to the fact that you came through that and it's your faith in God that has kept you. Just adds to the, the glory that's due him. That's due him. And I didn't seek you out because of that. I sought you out because of your path. I sought you out because of your past and how you have navigated through your past and made it a part of who you are and your future. So you, it's, in your, it's in you genetically. It's, it's genetically encoded in you. Your past is genetically encoded in you. It's written in you. But it's the choices that you've made with what's been done to you in response to what's been done to you, how you've chosen to live your life. And this is why you see so many people who drop out of life. You know, I've I've walked with prostitutes, I've walked with homeless, I've walked with people, and and I've seen people. I think the saddest thing in the world is that I've seen people from the Indian, from India, amongst the homeless. I've seen people from China amongst the homeless. And it's like that is something that I, you know, you don't think that you're going to see in America. You know, it's like you see Americans on the street, but you don't expect to see foreigners on the street walking homeless. And uh, so, you know, they've been turned out, they've been turned out and there is something so evil, so sinister that's brewing in this atmosphere of uh, the separation of church and state, if you would, that people are, the church, the church, I, I don't want to say, how could I put this? I say the people who are failing the body of Christ are failing so badly that the people who are on the look on the outside hurting, looking for a place of refuge because uh, you know, God is our refuge and our strength, right? That they haven't taken the time out to study the Bible for themselves. They just look to the people and the places uh, for refuge is that uh, these people have been uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. A lot of them pretending and operating under the label of Christianity. And when they fall, then they blame it on God and the church. And it's like, you did, you know, if you're going to put blame anywhere, put blame on yourself because you didn't check the fruit. Like you said in the beginning, yeah.
0: <laughs> you yeah. know, you
1: have to check the fruit, yeah. you have to check the fruit and, and the fig leaf. Um, I've, I've experienced a fig tree in my life, um, a real fig tree, you know, and the leaves are huge and you have to raise up the, the leaf to see the fruit. Right. They're huge, and I think yep. that that's what we as people don't do. Is that we look at how beautiful the tree is, but we don't raise up the leaf and, and inspect the fruit. Yeah. So, I think um, I would like to extend the invitation for you both, or you know, to come on collectively or individually, however you want to do. But I wanna, I wanna continue because honestly, people, I will tell you that. I took the high level. Normally, I I take a book that I'm reading and 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 interviewing the author. I go from cover to cover and I tell you that we have lived in the front of this book. <laughs> so, yes, if have. I really if I really unpack this book, you guys would be like balls up in a corner. And I tell you that I want to unpack your book. I, I, I want to unpack your book. So I, I'm asking you, please, to let me interview you again. Um, and, you know, you yes. tell me when. But um, this, this right here is kind of like an invitation, an invitation to all of those who are dealing with trauma. And you've been traumatized by your parents. You've been abused by your parents. This is an invitation to you to listen to this audio. It will be available within three to five minutes after the show is completed. Put it in your playlist. Subscribe on iTunes. We're in all of the the distribution markets. Subscribe to it. Um, I've thought about putting up um, some additional links and things like that, but I haven't done it because this is my passion. This is my heart. I would do this every day, every day. And um, I, I want to bring awareness, but I don't want to just bring awareness. I want you to be activated. I want you to be motivated. I want you to be inspired. I want you to do something. I want you to change your life. I want you to change your world first. You know, before you go out and try to change the world, I want you to change your life. Change your world. Change yourself first. Okay. Be the change that you need for yourself. Then be the change, like when when they talk about being on the plane, put your mask on before you try to put the mask on somebody else, right? Put your mask on first before you try to put the mask on somebody else and everybody on the plane and forget to put your own mask on. So at the end of the day, this has been an invitation to my audience. And like I said, um, my audience is in Australia, all across the globe. People are listening to this, and this is the beauty of this, this platform is that it is distributed internationally, globally, that anybody who is tuned in, so we have been, people have been listening to us all over the world, and we don't know who they are. People will listen to us later all over the world, and we will never know who they are, but they are listening
0: you have so for your audience.
3: Two. So for, so for your audience, if you'd like, if if they if they read ebooks, I'd like to give them a free copy of deal with it. Um, yes. If they go if they go to our website King dot com slash ebook, and if they type in the code DWI free at the end um, at the coupon level, then it'll download the book for free for them. If they would like a copy of the hard book, um, if they type in the code. S2S um, then that will give them 20% off the um, the paperback book so for a free copy of the um, e-book it's DWI free and for a copy of 20% discount off the hardcover that is S2S that stands for strength
1: to stress stress to strength
3: S2S that will give them 20% off for your audience because you're doing a great job and I want to support you as best I can thank
1: you Dr. John and to the mates down under
3: <laughs> There you go.
1: We have had the pleasure of interviewing one of your own. So please, 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 I'm going to update the hashtag on this. Um because I we have uh different people on LinkedIn that are in Australia, and so I've made it a a concentrated effort of mine to connect with people all across the globe uh to be in line with my listening audience and so I have a lot of people from Australia that's on my LinkedIn profile um, and um, they're doing a great work they're doing a great work we in the states have not caught up to them And, and I can't imagine the level of abuse that they've had of reporting on men being abused nobody wants to talk about that on boys being abused it's all you know women here in the United States but men are being abused boys are being abused sexually and every level that you can think of. And so we have it all you know in place for the women, but my voice, I'm lending it as a woman to the male side of the story. I've lended my voice to the women, but I'm lending my voice heavily toward the men because I need for this world to change its perception it's it. and its status and its position. On who is sexually abused it's not about gender it's about the human being so until the next time that you are available to come on the show Dr. King and Melissa uh, be blessed and continue your work and thank you so much for what you're doing please 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 pick up the free copy of his ebook from his site drjohnayking.com and remember um, you know what he said if you if you want to restate it again as we close out, Dr. King, how to get the free ebook and how to get the 20% discount yeah. on the paperback book?
3: Sure. If you go to drjohnaking.com/ebook, that'll take you to the page. And just when you when you check out, just in the coupon area, put um, DWI free, and you can download a copy for free. If you prefer a paperback, if you're in the US, I'll personally sign that for you um, and send that to you. At the checkout, put in the code S2S, and that'll give you a 20% uh, discount, which more than covers shipping. There you go. Great to be with you. Look forward to next time.
1: Yes. Thank you, Melissa. She
3: just stepped away. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: I can reach the stars Pull one down to you Shine
1: for being a part of Patricia Adams Live. Please download the MP3, share it on your social media platform, and stay tuned as we continue to bring awareness, motivation, and inspiration, and activation to your life on Patricia Adams Live. Have a blessed weekend. See you again next time.